Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm Joy Rios. And my name is Robin Robert. And in this episode, we'll be chatting with Kelly Whittle of Whittle Advisors. Today, Kelly will be sharing with us how she creates order out of chaos and which country she'd get healthcare from if she had the choice. So let's get started. Kelly, in the brief time that I have known you, I feel like I've become super impressed by your contributions to healthcare. And as I understand it, you were instrumental in the transition from ICD-9 to ICD-10. You advise medical practices in MACRA and MIPS, where you offer them a tracking tool, an analysis of their cost data, which is pretty special. You use a qualified registry and have the ability to submit all of that information directly to CMS. That is a pretty comprehensive service package in and of itself, but you also speak around the world about value-based care. But more than anything, I really like the way that you describe your work as bringing stability to chaos. That is certainly an analogy that I can get behind. Um, Can you take a moment to introduce yourself and maybe speak to some of the accomplishments that you are most proud of? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for inviting me to participate in the podcast today. It's exciting to share our successes at Whittle Advisors. I think some of the work that we're most proud of, and certainly our, our passion, is this concept that healthcare is either a right or you gain access to it. And this was what really drives us on the global level to stay involved in the conversation. As the United States wrestles with these concepts and as a society, we come to a decision on whether it's going to be a right or a simply an access issue. It's important that all types of backgrounds and uh, knowledge levels, whether it's, it's a patient or a clinician or um, data analyst or an administrator, that our voices be heard and our visions be, be shared for the future of healthcare in the U.S. As I work with my um, clients over the last several years, we've seen a, a variety of these types of um, opinions, and all of them uh, shape us for, for better or worse, but the conversations are vital regardless. 
Some of the work that we're most proud of at Whittle Advisors is the big bucket um, marketing type uh, statements. In the last five years, we've saved over $4 billion in patient revenue penalty from regulatory penalty and other payer type penalties. And that's in a huge amount of money that's remained in the practice side of healthcare. We're incredibly proud of that because we know that those dollars turn into medical treatments and those treatments either save lives or, or make the lives of patients better. In addition to that, we look at transitions um, pretty globally. And so we are passionate about shortening the transition length of time and distance. And really what that means is each of our clients has a different starting point in this move from value-based, from fee-for-service to value-based care. We identify exactly where that client exists and how far that transition is for them to value-based care, driving real value at the practice level. It sounds like you guys have your hands in about every aspect of value-based care, Kelly. You know, even your website speaks to just all of the facets upon which you approach value-based care and servicing your clients. Let me ask you a question specifically about data. I know one of the things we might have a, a shared passion for is just kind of data in general. How has access to data changed your professional game and what Whittle Advisors is doing for its clients, just whether it's public pay or whatever? What does that what does that impact your business and clients, you know, look like and what's it feeling like for them? That's a great question. And this is exactly where my passion either scares people away or encourages them. First of all, in any transition, whether you want to lose 10 pounds or start a, an exercise regimen or, or you want to save more money um, in your savings account, you can't make a change as a human being without measuring something. And so we always start at this place where we we think about that distance between where we're starting and, and what that target or objective is. And in value-based care, it's all about launching that central vision for the team to rally behind the transition that is really pervasive on the front line of, of healthcare, whether that's a practice or a healthcare system. Things are changing and they're changing pretty dramatically. So we, we begin by casting a vision of what that looks like. And in the US, we typically talk about this as the triple aim. We need to lower costs. We want to improve individual patient outcomes in their health. And we want ultimately healthier populations. I can tell you that in my experience over the last five or more years, I haven't met anyone in the healthcare industry today that cannot get behind the triple aim. It's absolutely a universal vision. Well, that's great and exciting, but when it comes down to making a change or making an improvement, you need more than a vision. So once the vision is cast, now it's time to begin to dig into the individual metrics. And this is the really exciting part. For example, under the MIPS quality measures, there are several process-based measures. And some in the industry will poo-poo the effect or the benefit of these process-based measures as not very um, influential in the types of outcomes that can be achieved 
just because you can count the number of CT exams, you know, how does that help my patient kind of arguments? Well, I can tell you that in any change initiative, it takes baby steps in gathering the data and thinking about data before entire practices or entities can get behind making workflow adjustments that are more meaningful to patient outcomes. Now, some of the first results that we saw in 2017 were, was exactly that. The workflow gaps began to bubble up to the top when we started to measure the processes. And so let's take, for example, the counting the number of CT exams before giving an exam, uh, a CT exam. Very often a radiologist would expect a, um, a technician, a rad tech, or someone else on the team to do that counting, to, to review the records and do the counting. But when we began to talk about the impact to patients, it became very evident that a rad tech counting the CT exams doesn't give the radiologist the opportunity to influence the care that's being provided to the patient. And so making some small tweaks in the workflow to determine who's going to count those exams, for example, we're now seeing um, where frequent flyers or those who are getting CT exams multiple times a day or multiple facilities in a week are now being um, advised of the dangers of exposure to excess radiation. And that is improving the outcomes of patients. The second thing we're seeing because of this focus on data and quality is this conversation around transitions of care. This is a big topic and we haven't solved it um, by any means in the healthcare industry, but it's a great time for us to talk about transitions of care and who's accountable and who's responsible. In the United States, we have um, just a huge number of healthcare verticals. We have general practitioners that operate in one vertical. You could argue that we have specialists that operate in another vertical. We have the inpatient versus the outpatient world. And so as a patient moves through care delivery from inpatient to outpatient or outpatient to a general practitioner to specialist, there's often a breakdown in communication about the care that's being provided. One of the measures that we're dealing with in MIPS 2017 and MIPS 2018 is the delivery of prophylactic antibiotics before certain surgical procedures. And it became very evident for certain specialists that they were expecting a general practitioner who was referring the patient for that procedure to provide those prophylactic antibiotics. And often a, a general practitioner, primary care doctor will say, well, no, I'm not doing the procedure. So it's more appropriate for the specialist to write that prescription for the prophylactic antibiotics. That's just one example out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of workflows that occur across the, the U.S. healthcare system where there's been a breakdown in historical um, terms regarding who's doing what, where, and when, and by measuring this data, we're now seeing the alignment and the communication starting that will impact the quality of care for individual patients. No, absolutely. I, I love what you said about, you know, that exciting part being able to dig into those individual metrics because we, we can't change anything until it's assessed. What do you think is one of your biggest hurdles in, 
you know, helping people understand that, you know, what is, what is your approach to kind of the simplification of this? And I think really what you were hitting on in a lot of your examples is the intersection to these programs. Do you feel like the people you're talking to, I guess, get it for lack of a, a better term, or is it really, you know, what is what all advisors help do to kind of tie this end to end into kind of the MIPS and macro and APM compliance of what CMS is asking? versus what's going on practically in a facility or a practice. Yeah, this is never um, a one-size-fits-all answer. And so at the risk of sounding like a consultant, it absolutely depends. Very often, there's an amount of awareness that takes place when we begin to engage with a prospective client. And that awareness typically takes one of two tracks. The first is all around um, the legality of it. So this is a law, it's not a choice. We are moving um, the payment structure from fee-for-service to value-based care. We, in, in that uh, interim of that movement, um, you're required to develop a framework that will allow you to operate as clinicians in this thing called value-based care or value um, receiving value payments. And so sometimes that works, other times, um, Groups are motivated by patient outcomes. And so we drive back to the data, giving plenty of examples around um, the types of improvements that we're seeing and that are possible in the industry. And sometimes it's benchmarking, you know, peer to peer that that data is pretty available and um, not necessarily new to MIPS or MACRA. And then the third, and um, I, I kind of cringe a little because after all, Healthcare isn't just about revenue, but in some cases you have to address the fact that revenue will be impacted. So we start out with smaller um, penalties or bonus opportunities up to 4% last year, 5% in 2018, 7% next year, topping out at 9% penalty um, and up to 9% penalty in the fourth year of the program. And typically that will, will get um, some traction. And then we layer on the fact that this is a CMS program this year, but starting in 2019, all payers can um, investigate and use the, the framework and the model. So there's a, a chance that it would be a 7% penalty across multiple types of payers and perhaps your entire book of business. And by that point, if they still are not um, very engaged in making the transition. I welcome them to reach back to us in the future when they decide that it's a better time to take on this change. I think this one as a payment reform is here to stay. And so um, sometimes it's just a matter of CMS reiterating the fact that this isn't a program that's going to be sunset or uh, be removed from our future in the, in the U.S. That is so well said. And I know Joy and I can relate to kind of the, the two tracks that that learning kind of takes place. But that last thing you hit the nail on the head so many times had conversations after speaking or presenting or doing something. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, save my business card because you don't need it now, but you're going to, right? Whatever that awakening occurs for them. So I know Joy wants to talk to you so much more about kind of the global speaking, you've done these international opportunities and, and what you've learned there. So I'll hand it over to her. Sure. Thanks, Robin. Well, we know this conversation is, you know, healthcare is not just unique to the United States. And, you know, the triple aim 
and value-based care is very much a global conversation, even though we have our own set of rules, you know, here in the U.S. that that we are guided by. But you have experiences, you know, speaking around the world about value-based care. I would love to hear more about that and hear your comparison of, you know, maybe the places that you've been um, and how they how they compare and contrast with our healthcare system. Thank you for that question. I'm incredibly passionate about healthcare access, as I've mentioned. Um, it comes from my own personal experience, and so I'll digress. I'll digress if that's acceptable for a moment and share a very personal story. My uh, father-in-law is from England, and his mother, brother, and, and immediate family members still reside in the UK. And um, obviously, my husband and I are American. Um, my husband's a, a first-born um, immigrant from uh, from the from the UK, so he, he's American, but his parents are are British. About five years ago, um, his American grandmother fell and broke her hip at around the age of 84. And about a year later, his British grandmother fell and broke her hip. And she also was um, 85 at the time. And what we noticed was that there was a, a stark contrast to the delivery of healthcare and the acceptance of the delivery of healthcare on the part of the patient and the family. And so in America, when the American grandmother fell and broke her hip, um, she had surgery for a pin in her hip, and she was um, up and walking within 27 hours after the successful surgery. She has no complicating health factors. And so she was in rehab almost immediately, um, up moving around doing physical therapy within a day of having the pin in her hip. And she was home after three weeks. She, she went to extended care for about um, 18 or 19 days where she received physical therapy and training to, to do stairs, etc. We contrast that with the story of my husband's uh, British grandmother who fell and broke her hip and waited in the hospital 14 days for surgery to pin her hip because of capacity issues in the UK healthcare system. And what resulted was the bones began to knit back together before the pin was placed. And therefore, her left leg, which was the one with a broken hip, ended up three inches shorter than her right leg. And she ended up with a lift in her shoe and um, walking sticks or canes um, to be uh, mobile, um, which she still is using uh, today. So in, in contrasting, these two care delivery systems. In America, we were outraged that the American, that the British grandmother waited 14 days for surgery and ended up with a permanent disability in one leg because of the lack of access to quick care. I can tell you that in England, they were not outraged. They were grateful that she had such a positive outcome that she became completely mobile after the surgery, after the care and the therapy, and that she was able to regain her walking and, and her independence. And when we spoke to my husband's uh, British grandmother, we, we asked her how she, she was recovering from the care and what her thoughts were. 
and she said that she received the right care at the right time. At 85 years of age, she was blessed to have received the care that she did because surgery should be reserved for those who are young and have a long lifespan yet to live. How interesting that a lot of it is just a a completely different perspective on, you know, what each individual, in quotation marks, should receive. That's fascinating. Is that fascinating? I thought it was completely fascinating. And from there, uh, we started, you know, exploring the approach to healthcare in other countries. And it's no secret in the United States that we spend about 18% of GDP annually on healthcare. It's close to $3 trillion a year. If you follow the World Health Organization, they've set a benchmark that says you should not spend more than 5% of GDP to have a sustainable healthcare system. We're more than three times that expense. And we certainly don't have a sustainable healthcare system at the existing rate of um, cost increases year over year. And in fact, in the US, we don't even have a system that covers every citizen. Even yet today, there are those that are uninsured or can't simply afford the care that uh, they can gain access to. But other countries view this very differently. And we've touched on the societal norms um, that are different uh, between the UK and, and the US. If I expand that view of societal norms and differences, I think we can bucket the global healthcare picture into three or four really large buckets. And these are generalizations, I acknowledge that, but just to paint a picture of how other countries are managing the system. First of all, there are no perfect healthcare systems. Everyone, every healthcare system has limitations, and some of those limitations are due to policy. Other limitations are due to capacity, and we'll touch a little bit on that. There are several countries that have single payer systems. This is common in Europe, for example. Um, these are well established single payer systems. And so when I talk about well established, I'm talking about old single payer systems, systems that have been around for four decades, five decades, 60 years, etc. In those countries, they tend to have real capacity issues. And part of the challenge in capacity issues is just folks not showing up for appointments. I um, have some colleagues in Ireland that I work pretty closely with. And in Ireland, you can wait nine months to get an appointment to remove a cataract, for example. Well, many times, um, by the time nine months elapses, somebody either doesn't need a cataract surgery any, any longer due to other healthcare issues, or they've forgotten about the appointment and the appointments go unfilled. So there's a lot of no-show appointments or waste in the system associated with single payers. The second challenge that these well-established single-payer systems have deals with technology and innovation. And if you've been in the technology field for a long time, you'll know that there is technology improvements that evolve over time, and these are incremental improvements over time. This is typically what you see in, in large hospital systems. They add a certain capacity or functionality onto their uh, healthcare technology backbone, and so you, you get little bits of um, increased functionality over time versus complete innovation. And complete innovation is much harder to establish when you're 
dealing with and maintaining legacy systems. And so how this impacts the citizenry is that in these old single-payer systems that are providing care for all, you have very isolated systems. So technology might have developed in the city of London. So you have an EHR or technology backbone that is restricted geographically and sometimes within a single hospital or medical practice. This sounds familiar. It's similar to what we struggle with in the United States. Other problems that are associated with innovation is that if you continue to evolve technology over time, number one, it's very expensive and the system needs to change almost continuously to stay current with technical innovations. But the very thought of ripping out a system and replacing it with something that is more cutting edge or has more, more capacity is very expensive. And most single payers are spending the majority of their money delivering care, not developing capacity in technology systems. So it truly is a, a double-edged sword for these well-established single pairs. Another bucket that we can look at is that of developing countries. Countries that are um, developing in their societal structures. So they might be developing infrastructure um, like internet uh, technology capabilities, better edu education, bringing in increased capacity of healthcare, just making healthcare accessible. Many developing countries haven't yet built enough infrastructure to tackle the problem of how do we pay for healthcare? That's a question that comes pretty far down the road. The first question is, can we build a hospital? Do we have doctors to staff the hospital? Can we keep the hospital safe from local violent attack, etc.? And then there's the access to care question around cost. Who pays? Can the average citizen afford the care for this infrastructure that is just being built out and has to be uh, compensated or needs a return on investment to be able to sustain? And the third bucket that you could consider on the global scale would be single payers of developing countries. And I'm using that developing um, very loosely here. Uh, certainly Taiwan is a economic powerhouse in Asia. I was in Taiwan in November speaking at a World Hospital Congress and they were showcasing the development of their single payer system. It was incredibly technically advanced. And so I want to give you just a few data points to paint the picture about how Taiwan has been able to leapfrog in accessing a lot of innovative technologies and driving down the cost of healthcare for their citizens. First of all, Taiwan has 23 million citizens, so it's not a very large country. They're currently spending 6% of their GDP on healthcare, which is fabulous. It's so close to the World Health Care or the World Health Organization's benchmark. 100% of their population has coverage. And when Taiwan set out to create a single payer system for healthcare, they did over three years of research in designing what their system would look like and what the policies would entail to cover their citizens. So the first thing they did was look at existing 
well-established uh, single payers and multi-payer systems from around the world. They research the United States, they research single payers in Europe. And what they decided on was that technology could be the, the innovation that helped them drive down cost and increase capacity at a very rapid rate. And they did this by designing a single national EHR and a single national pharmacology or drug database. So every prescription that's prescribed in the country of Taiwan runs through this single database. And all licensed clinicians have access to both the EHR and the pharmacology database. So whenever a patient is seen, regardless of what part of the country they're in, the doctor then logs in to the secure data sets that allow them to see very quickly the patient's history, previous medical problems, um, allergies, etc. The data is available at the right place at the right time. In addition to that, they use really innovative things like uh, GPS-controlled robots to deliver supplies to the hospital wards. They program their robots. They um, fill them with all kinds of supplies, whether they're medications or sheets or equipment that needs to be delivered to a ward. They program uh, the GPS location, and then that robot delivers that material to the ward where a person unloads those materials in a very cost-effective and efficient manner. Wow. So I have read a lot about countries that are, you know, what seem from being on the outside, you know, developing and potentially behind, but because they haven't actually adopted technologies that potentially weren't fully ready or at capacity or developed, that they get that opportunity to leapfrog and, you know, skip over stuff that maybe was clunky into the stuff that actually works. So that's incredible to know that Taiwan is the country to look at at the moment. I honestly had no idea. Yeah, absolutely. Taiwan's doing amazing things, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention that mainland China is doing phenomenal work as well. They're training their uh, physicians using holograms in the medical schools so you, you can holographically learn anatomy and physiology and you can practice you know your first surgeries can be you know technology based and um, they're doing incredible things that the gps systems that we see in taiwan are seen in mainland china as well they they have incredible um what they call healthcare cities they're so large, they have their own power plants and water supplies and, um, you know, just thousands and thousands of beds within one facility. When you're dealing with over a billion people in population, it's the healthcare system in the U.S. multiplied, you know, three or four times. And so the delivery system is, is quite in, impressive, I guess, if you think about the capacity they have to care for on a regular basis. That makes a lot of sense. I'm sitting here with my jaw dropped just thinking about that. You know, um, for each episode, we are including additional resources. So I'm going to make a point to go find um, maybe YouTube videos or some examples of um, just so people can have an idea of what this actually looks like. This is 
pretty, I mean, I just can't even imagine seeing in person a healthcare city with GPS controlled robots. Um, that's insanely impressive. It's really impressive. Uh, when I was in Nanjing, I, um, I learned about this company called Vigo and you might want to take a look at it. It's a US based company. It's led the founder and CEO is, um, as a NASA engineer, they took what looks like an iPad and put it on a GPS controlled uh, robotic body. And then they, they deploy it into places like Ebola treatment centers in Africa, saving hours and hours uh, and potential contagion for the clinicians because the it's a two-way communication device that allows the clinician to stay safe at a distance, but talk to patients um, to assess their condition and their needs before they get dressed in protective gear to go in and care for the patient. Kelly, this is Robin. I'm going to do something a podcast host should never do. I have a closed-ended question for you. You can't get health care in the United States. You as an individual, knowing everything you know about global care, you have to pick one city and country to go to. Where do you go? Oh, that is a fascinating question. Honestly, I think I have to choose an Asian country because uh, for two reasons. Um, number one is that they embrace Western uh, philosophies, but they also embrace Eastern philosophies. And in my personal care, I want to know that I'm more than a, a surgical procedure or a pharmaceutical that my doctor is taking into consideration that I have societal connections, I have societal norms, and I have a societal accountability. And, and what I'm trying to get across here is that in the, in the United States, our end of life transitions aren't accepted as normal. We tend to fight and extend life at all costs. And in fact, if you look at the Medicare expense, you'll see that over one third of expense goes into caring for elderly patients at the end of life. And so um, in Asian countries, you typically don't die in a hospital. It's not seen as an illness. It's seen as a natural part of life. And it's considered a, a normal um, human condition. We, we all have a birth and we all have a death. And so typically you, you die or you're cared for at end of life or with your family in your home or in a, in a place where you can get the, the palliative care that you need for your, your end of life transition. So if I'm going to can't get access in the U.S., I'm, I'm going to go to an Asian country that could be, uh, you know, Shanghai or Beijing or Nanjing, China, all three of those countries or cities, major cities in China are, are doing fabulous uh, cutting edge stuff. Uh, Hong Kong is another opportunity. And certainly Taiwan um, was exemplary. I'm heading to Australia the first week in October. And so in November, I'll tell you, maybe I'd go to Australia. I haven't seen their system firsthand yet. All right. So we, we got to give them more of a fair shake. Well, Kelly, we are winding down and our listeners and our audience can't see it, but Joey and I have been texting back and forth words like, wow, fascinating, cool. Uh, as we're chatting back and forth, listening to you, I want to say thank you so very much. This has been really fascinating. And even just in these 30 minutes or so, I've learned so much. So I want to say thank you for your time and sharing your professional experience and your perspective on these things. 
at Hit Like a Girl, we we really appreciate and are just really blown away by, you know, your experiences and your willingness to share that with our listeners. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for this incredible opportunity. There's an incredible amount of change that needs to take place in the healthcare system. And so every day I wake up excited to tackle another set of problems so that we can increase capacity and access to healthcare, not just in the United States, but globally around the world. It's quite a humbling endeavor because the, the change is so vast. But I, I appreciate the work that you two are doing in the industry as well. Well, thank you. I think we talk again in a year or less because I think you're going to have so much more to share with our listeners. So thank you again for your time today. We've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with Kelly and learned a lot about her efforts to transform healthcare. If you'd like to get to know Kelly a little bit more or follow her on her world speaking tour, you can head on over to our website, hitlikeagirlpod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at the same handle, hitlikeagirlpod. Also, if you found value in this episode, we ask that you share it with just one person. This podcast is available on iTunes and your favorite podcast listening apps. Thanks so much for being here. See you next time.